Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we continue our series on economic justice in the Bible with Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, and Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. Why does Jesus tell this man that he needs to sell everything he owns? That's an awfully high bar. And why is that even harder to do when you're wealthy? We consider the sense of safety and independence that money and material resources offer us, and the ways in which that can block us from ever really, truly needing to trust God or each other. We see the kingdom of God envisioned here as a life of complete interdependence and mutual responsibility. But boy, do we live in the tension of what this text calls us to do what we are ready and able to do today. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby, how are you? Hey, Amy, I'm doing really great. How are you? I'm doing well. I have to tell you, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I think I'm allowed to say this. I really enjoyed our brief foray back into the Hebrew Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which is not to say I do not also enjoy reading New Testament texts with you, but I was like, oh, we're done with that part. We're done with that part for now. Just for a little while. The Hebrew Bible is really nice. Like, I love those texts too, as you well know. And yeah, like I I like skipping back there. One summer, we're just going to do a series in the Hebrew scripture. I don't know what we're going to do, but we're just going to spend the summer there. We're going to take some section that no one has ever read. Remember in graduate school when Carol Newsom said something like, if you haven't read, what was it, like Obadiah in Hebrew, then <laughs> yeah. you're not really a Bible scholar or something that I was like, I yeah, was going to say Obadiah Habakkuk, in English. Yeah. yeah, Habakkuk or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who's read those things? I still haven't read those things. Don't tell anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay, great. So we'll do that sometime, but that's not what we're doing today. That's not what we're doing this time. We're headed back into the New Testament, but hopefully we're building on themes that we yes, will now sure. can see more clearly how they come out of the Hebrew scripture. Yes. So this is a continuation of our series on economic justice in the biblical text. And today we are reading two, we're reading from two parts of the gospel of Luke, a little bit from chapter four, and then a bit more from chapter 18. So as we turn our minds back to the world of Luke, can you orient us just a little bit in Luke 4? What do we need to know as we're heading into this? Yeah, I and mean, we haven't been in Luke in a year. We spent a long time with Luke last season from, say, January to May, and now we're coming back. You know, for these New Testament texts, like sometimes it's important, I think, to really understand which gospel you're in and how that gospel develops its themes. In this particular series, I don't think we really need that kind of background. We're going to do one text from Luke, one from Matthew, one from John. But I do think for this text, it's important. The reason we picked Luke 4 is because in this gospel, that's Jesus's 
the inauguration of his ministry. So he's been born and he's been circumcised and all of those things. He's been out in the wilderness and he's been tempted. And then the very first thing he does when he comes back from the wilderness to go and start his ministry is he goes to his hometown in Nazareth and he reads in the synagogue, which is the text that we're reading today. And so this text is Jesus. I mean, the way I read it in the Gospel of Luke, he's sort of framing his ministry. Like, what am I even doing here? Let me give you like the introduction to my ministry so you'll know how to frame it. And it's pretty, it's a pretty important framing. And then it gives us the context for how we'll read Luke 18 in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other things you want to say about that? I think, I mean, I think that puts us squarely where we need to be to, uh, to pull out what we want, you know, for our particular questions about this, this text for today's purposes. This text, by the way, does occur in both Mark and Matthew, but it occurs at a different place in Jesus's ministry. And so Luke has taken a story that he got from Mark and, but he's moved it. And he said, instead of this being sort of halfway through Jesus's ministry, it's the very beginning. And so for Luke, this story has a particular importance in helping us think about what Jesus is up to in his ministry. That's really important, I think. I think that's really important. This is our, this is our whole introduction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see what he says then. Do you know that phrase about doorknob moments? No. <laughs> I don't know doorknob moments. It comes out of like... Uh, I mean, I guess it can come out of pedagogy. I think of it a lot in like group process where you always leave just a little moment to let, because sometimes the most important thing like pops out at you, like right after everybody thinks everything's over, you know, it's like that thing that you were going to say. And if you just are like, okay, see ya, then it never gets said. But if you sort of pause at the doorknob and just wait for a second, that's what that, I felt like that Matthew, Mark, Luke thing that I just did was like a doorknob moment because I wasn't going to say it. Because you weren't going to say it, but I, I think it actually is really important. Yeah. Probably calling it a doorknob moment was less important. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, now that we're I, here, I'm kind of regretting this whole thing. <laughs> don't have regrets, Bobby. No, I think, um, I'm glad you paused. I'm glad you added that little piece in. Okay. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. I am reading from the NRSV. You ready? I'm ready. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's such a beautiful section from Isaiah that he's that he's yeah. reading. It's the first two. It's it, pretty a pretty close quote of the first two verses of Isaiah sixty one. What struck me first in this, Bobby, I am certain would not have struck me if I had not been studying with you over these many years. But was in this first this the the very introduction of what he says. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Yes. Like period. Yeah. That's 
That's the that's what I'm doing. And then I'm going to go on and tell you more about that. Do you, I mean, do you want to, like, I almost just want to say, like, get up on your soapbox. Like, pull that out a little. <laughs> that's, yeah. like, he has anointed me to do this thing. Yeah. That, that's pretty powerful. That is really powerful. I appreciate your pointing it out that way. And I'm glad that reading with me has had that effect. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I feel like that I'm being true to myself and being true to the gospel. If that's what people, with you study with me long enough, that's what you start saying or, or noticing. Because, yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right, Amy, that, this is this is the mission statement of Jesus in Luke's gospel. It's good news to the poor. And so, I mean, to me, it's a really helpful way just thinking of myself as a person of faith, as a Christian, as a, you know, my congregations, my churches, like is whatever I'm doing and saying, what, however we are in the world, is it good news for the poor? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then I think, okay, well, I must be doing something gospel related. And if the answer is no, then I, I mean, it's a time to sort of do a self-check check and think like, yeah. okay, if it's not good news to the poor and, you know, there's a lot, a lot of things that are, go on in the world that are not good news to the poor. And so that becomes a really important measure, I think, for, for what we're up to. Yeah. So then in terms of what comes after this, like if you were to try to like diagram some big sentence or like map out how these different things are related to each other. Anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And then there's sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's like, a those are a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you start to draw some connections between them or sort of I don't know, outline how you think these things flow or fit together? Yeah, I mean, the way that I read it, I mean, that's such a nice question because they're kind of related to each other, but they're not exactly the same thing. Yeah. The CEB of what I'm, that I'm reading has them just as, like in a sequence. They're like one thing, one, two, three, four. I like the way you're thinking of it as the mission statement is he has sent me to preach good news to the poor, colon. And then mm. what does that look like? You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is the ones, the things that he chooses to talk about are prisoners, mm -hmm. people who are unsighted, mm -hmm. and those who are oppressed. And when you think about the way the world actually works and like who actually are the poor, you know, that's a pretty good that's list true. of people, people who are come, run afoul of the prison system. In, in this case, maybe we're talking about debtor's prison. Uh, or, you know, I think debtor's prison is at least a part of it. But the prison mm -hmm. system affects impoverished people disproportionately. Yes. And also people who encounter the prison system often end up on the other side of it being impoverished. And yeah. so the relationship of prison and poor. Recovery of sight to the blind. You know, the relationship of blindness to poverty is a difficult one. I mean, it's just hard to talk about it in ways that are thoughtful. But yeah. one of the things that I think is happening here is that people who are differently abled mm -hmm. in a society that is not set up yes. to yes. embrace and celebrate and support their gifts really can fall through the cracks very easily. Yeah. Yes. And so in an ancient society, especially if you are unsighted, um, that is going to lead you into to poverty more often than not. Yeah. The oppressed, I think, is a nice catch-all term. Like, <laughs> here's two things we want to name. And then people who, you know, for whom the system is not working, people who are being dominated by the system, people who are not able to live fully and, and thrive in the world. 
Mm-hmm. Is kind of how I read that. Yeah. I'm curious when you look at that list. Oh, and then, you know, then the proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like, I think that needs its own conversation. But yes. to me, that goes back. Like, good news to the poor, the year of the Lord's favor are like the bookends that are embracing those specific terms in the middle. Is yeah. kind of how I read it. That's really helpful. And I it, it was especially helpful for me when you, because I was having trouble connecting releasing the captives and letting the oppressed go free with recovering the sight mm. of those who are blind. Yeah. But that was really helpful. Like these are situations that that people live in the world in, you know, with in these situations and they are often connected to poverty. Yeah. Yeah. It's about people who are vulnerable. And yeah. I think if you want to expand the list, like think of other ways in which people are vulnerable, especially economically vulnerable, this list seems to be. And we could certainly think of other items, I think, to sort of fill in the list a little bit. Yeah. It'd be interesting to try to write like a modern version of this. Yeah. Who are the people that you're speaking to if you're offering yeah. news to the poor? Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great thing to do. So then when we go on to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, what is that? What does that mean to you? Does that mean anything? What does that mean to you? I'm just going to leave it really open. What does that mean to you? (laughs) Yeah. You know, to me, when I read to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, where my head goes is back to that first text that we read together in this series in Deuteronomy 15, which is the sabbatical year. This is the Mm -hmm. year of the writing of the imbalances, the economic imbalances in society. And this this is when we give the land back. This is when we forgive debts. There's another version of that, as you well know, in Leviticus 25, the Jubilee year, yeah. which we, we which we could have read instead of reading Deuteronomy 15. It, it's every 50th year instead of every seventh year. The details are slightly different. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think this is what's in mind in the year of the Lord's favor is the Hebrew scriptures have in both Deuteronomy and Leviticus this idea of the resetting of society in ways that correct the imbalances of access to resources, basically, and, mm-hmm. that, and that this is what Jesus is inaugurating. Is that how you would read that? Or would, what would you say about that? I mean, yes. I wondered if I could go sort of all the way that far to say this is like actually thinking about a Jubilee year or a Shemitah year or metaphorically thinking about one. But I think it's important to pull out, at least as, as I, under, and again, like, as I understand the Hebrew of Isaiah, which is being quoted here. So like, there's a little yeah. bit of distance, but this, this phrase, the Lord's favor, in English, it sounds like this is the year God's going to do you a favor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. in Hebrew, it's ratzon ladonai. It's like in, in, in synagogue, we say like, can you hear ratzon? Like, may it be your will. Maybe, mm. may it be your desire. Like this is this is this is what God actually has in mind for the world. So it's I, I read it more as this is the year that like like if God got to be king for a day, like for real, <laughs> this yeah. is what it would look like. This you know this is when God's God's plan or God's prep. Well, I don't know how what words we want to use for it. The ratzo and ladonai actually gets to. Uh, come to be in the world. And what that looks like is release of the captives and sight to the blind and the oppressed go free. Amy, I love that so much. You kind of have transformed my way of thinking about that because to me, that's like, you've taken this sort of specific examples of what I was saying. And you've said, in fact, this is part of a much bigger picture. 
which is the the desire of God for the way the world should be, which includes those two things, but it also includes a lot of other things as we have evidence from, I mean, from the Torah and from the prophets and elsewhere. And so to say Jesus then is saying, I am showing you, I am bringing to you the way of life that God desires, an example of the way the world could be or should be. Mm. I love that. I really love that. It's, it is the sabbatical year, but it's not limit. It's not just the sabbatical year. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just, this is, this is the way God actually wants it. Like it's not, yeah. God's going to fix the things that you broke as a favor to you. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's writing, writing things. I love that. And I think that'll play in to our interpretation of Luke 18, or at least I can see mm-hmm. some connections there. Yeah, I think so too. The other thing that you're making me think about, I mean, it's not exactly right here, but like for me, this is what the New Testament means when it uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. It's not like some distant place where you live out your eternal afterlife. It's like actually the will of God, Mm -hmm. what God desires for the world put into action here and now. Maybe it extends into some future as well, Mm -hmm. but it's here and now. And I think sometimes Christian readers get confused about that. And they think, well, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about like what happens after we die. And in fact, I think that what you've just been saying is exactly right. There is this image, this vision that God will actually enact in time and space, the world, the way God wishes it to be. And in the Luke's understanding, Jesus is inaugurating that process Mm -hmm. right here. I love that. And I love, oh, that already has me thinking forward to, um, to chapter 18 because I had, I had that thought and I had questions around it and I could see where it would get confusing to readers because there's a lot of different ideas kind of put in the mix there. So I can feel myself pushing ahead to chapter 18, but before we do that, is there anything else we want to pull out of this little section from chapter four? I mean, to me, it is important that Jesus here is talking about himself in terms of the prophecies of Isaiah Mm -hmm. from the Hebrew scripture. And I mean, I know we kind of dance around this and like, how do you think about Jesus's fulfillment of Hebrew scripture and all of those kinds of things. But at at this moment, what seems important to me is that Jesus does not see himself as doing something brand new or as something different than the tradition that comes before him. He sees himself as taking this thing that was promised 500 years earlier and saying, now God is actually starting to do that in a different way here and now. So Mm -hmm. just the connectedness between the New Testament and the Hebrew scripture, between what becomes Christianity and what is Judaism seem important to me. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that and how how to read that responsibly? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you the thought that popped into my head as you were saying it, and then you can bleep it out later if you don't like it. (laughs) No, it's that I... I mean, I, I really agree with you, and I think that if indeed this had happened during Jesus's life, Jews and Christians would be having a different conversation yeah. now. But I think yeah. there really is this fundamental agreement that this is what the Messianic time would look like. Like, this is yeah. what the fulfillment of these promises would look like. It's just a matter of you know, what we can call what until things have actually happened on the ground, you know, what, whatever, like that's where yeah. we sort of get into more disagreement. But I think this is a real place of agreement. 
That's a really interesting way of thinking of it. So that the question is not, is this what the Messianic age would look like? The question is, did Jesus succeed in inaugurating the Messianic age or did he not? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? That's mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Because mm-hmm. I, I mean, like the way that I would talk about that as a Christian is to say Jesus inaugurated the messianic age, which has not yet come fully to fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And so even within my tradition, there's a recognition that yes. Jesus didn't do this in any straightforward way. Yeah. Sort of the, the kingdom starts to inbreak in this moment, but it's we're still waiting for it to come fully mm-hmm. into being. The only other thing I would say about this little section is I just love this sermon. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. maybe Jesus said more <laughs> than this, but like the sermon as we have it is, today the scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. It's just like a like a mic drop, like boom. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that's so awesome. And it makes me wonder like if there were any hand gestures associated with that. <laughs> you know, yeah. Jazz hands, maybe. What was his attitude? Jazz hands, yeah. Mic drop. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Room Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on the Bible and economic justice. Amy and I are grateful to you for being a part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. See patreon.com slash Bible and podcast for details. And now back to this week's special episode. We should probably say that we talked about this text in season two, uh, somewhere along in there. And, you know, if, if you're really interested in this text, it would be worth going back and finding that episode and listening to it. So there's more. Jesus gets thrown off, a, almost gets thrown off a cliff and some other stuff happens yeah. later on in this text. It's pretty, it's, it's a pretty good text. Yeah. But for today, we're not reading that. We are we're instead not. moving on to Luke chapter 18, where we're going to read verses 18 through 30. Now, this, of course, is a different moment in Jesus's ministry, but it's, it's one of these stories that can be fairly, like, understood well enough. Uh, you know, it's pretty self-contained. Yeah. So I don't think we need a lot of background. Is there anything you think we need before we read? I don't really think so. I think that Luke 4 kind of sets the stage of how Jesus is thinking about poverty and the kingdom of heaven, the will of God, however you want to talk about that. And then this text kind of fits in there within that framework without too much explanation. Without too much explanation. Fantastic. So then I'm going to pick up in verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I have kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. All right, we're going to pause there for a moment. There's a lot already going on here. There's a lot going on here. One thing I want to say is when you read it that way, 
This, the heading of this text in my Bible is a rich man's question. Mm. Sometimes this story is called the story of the rich young ruler. And so like the way that we commonly talk about it, the idea that he's rich is sort of on the table from the very beginning. But the way you just read it without introducing it that way, like you don't actually hear that he's rich until the end of verse 23, exactly where you stopped. Yeah. So you've got this whole story. You know he's important, but you don't know that he's wealthy until right there. He was yeah. sad because he was rich. Yeah. I don't know if that's important, but to me it changes the reading a little bit if you don't know that he's wealthy when you're reading that whole previous part. Yeah, I think it I think it really does change it because it you I mean not that I think of myself as a certain ruler, but it like the question that he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, I I have questions for you about that question, but but it's something that I would imagine a lot of people have that question. You know, and so yeah. we can we can empathize with him without thinking, oh, this is someone who's not like me. Yeah. What do you think he's asking exactly when he says inherit eternal life? Like, what do you think he wants to know? I mean, I read this, we saw a text last year in Luke chapter 10, this parable, which turns into the parable of the Good Samaritan, where a legal expert asked Jesus exactly the same question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, the way we talked about it then in a podcast last year was the question is basically like, what is the checklist Mm-hmm. that gets me into, I think, gets me into life, into heaven, gets me into like life after death. That's what yeah. I think he's asking. Yeah. I want to know, like, what's what are the requirements and have I done them? Is that how you read that? I had forgotten about the checklist, but yeah, I, I think that's right. I wasn't thinking about the checklist so much here, but I was thinking about what he means by eternal life. And yeah. I think you, I think you're right. The reason I'm asking the question here is because later, as we sort of already gestured toward, I'm not sure that that's exactly the the question that Jesus answers right up front. Yeah. But it's, I guess it's notable that that he and the other uh, scholar that we talked about in that other text and, you know, so many of us probably are, have our minds sort of thrown into the future. What, what do we have to do? What do we have to do to make things better way out there? You know, it's in some yeah. other time and place from right here. Yeah, maybe that's a maybe that's a natural human inclination. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think that's really important, Amy, that Jesus is answering a different question than the one he was asked. I, th- I think that's I think that's right. And I think it's also right that the general human inclination, at least am- among lots of folks that I know and mm-hmm. and me myself, is what what do I need to do to know that I'm going to be okay after I die? Like that's a, in, in the Christian yeah. world, at least in the modern Christian world, that's like maybe the most important question in some traditions yeah. within Christianity is like, do you know where your soul's going to go when you die? And I think that's what this guy's asking. And I think Jesus is picking up on that. Like, oh, this is, I mean, it's, it's a concern. Like it's something yeah. people think about. Yeah. And, and I think you're right that by the end of this, he's going to redirect that question to, to something else. It maybe includes that, but it's not yeah. limited simply but it's not limited to what to happens that. after I die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure this is worth talking about here, but I'm just curious. Why do you think Jesus gives him this little, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Like it just reads as like kind of grumpy to me. What's wrong with calling someone good teacher? Yeah. I, Honestly, Amy, I don't know what to do with that either. Okay, we don't <laughs> like, have to do anything I, with it. I mean, I, I, it might be that it's just totally beside the point of what we're trying to do with the text. It's just, 
a curiosity. It's a good question. I mean, it sticks out to you in the text. And especially if you're, you know, if you're a Trinitarian Christian, yeah. when you're like, well, yeah. Jesus is God. And so in fact, that's exactly the right thing you should say. I mean, the way that I tend to read it is just that Jesus is deflecting a compliment here. Yeah. He's been called good and he's just saying, oh, shucks. Right. Yeah. Like, don't, don't focus on that. Like, that's not the point. Yeah. I don't, I don't read it as a reprimand. Like you shouldn't have called me good. Shame on you. But just as a like, hey, like, that's not the point here. But I, but I don't know really where that reading comes from. It's just kind of where I, where I go with it. Well, I like that. It's less grumpy. <laughs> so then Jesus starts to answer the question. Yeah. Right? With these commandments that are familiar to us. They are from the Ten Commandments. Not all of the Ten Commandments. Focused, it seems, on... The commandments between, I read it as the the commandments between people rather than between a human and God. That's the way I read it too. Yeah, so sometimes people talk about the Ten Commandments as like the first tablet is about how you should relate to God and the second tablet is how you should relate to human beings. Yeah. And if you frame it that way, then this is the second tablet. Like what is, what is it, what do you need to do to live in community? Right. It's interesting. He kind of gives them like he gives them. He gives them a little out of order. Like he just kind of like it just feels a little off the cuff. Like it's kind of funny to me the way <laughs> like he wasn't expecting Jesus this is. question. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's just a little casual. Like I mean I don't know. Like I expect Jesus would have had the commandments memorized and he would have just given you the scripture. You know, like but he just sort of like yeah, you know, like uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. That's good. I like it. But then. Then Jesus adds this other one that is so striking. I think it's so interesting that Jesus, like he gives him the guy and the, and the rule, uh, those ones and the ruler's like, oh yeah, I got this. <laughs> like he's so, yeah. He feels so confident for just a minute, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, I got this. I've been doing that since I was a kid. Yeah, and then Jesus adds. Yeah, drops the other shoe. Yeah, it adds this. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor. Jesus, man. Now, oh yeah, wait. There's just one more thing. One more thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it like that was Jesus' doorknob moment? He's like, oh, I thought you got it. And he's like, oh wait. <laughs> one more thing. So sell all the things. Get rid of the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and remember, we still don't know this guy's. We still don't know this guy is poor. I mean, is rich. We don't know this guy is. That's right. Yeah. Like he's a he's a leader in the community in right. Archon, we don't assume that like, he is. Yeah, he's not vulnerable. He's somebody so. of substance. Yeah, so we know he's not. You know, like down and out. But we don't know that he's that he's wealthy. Okay, so Bobby, my reading of the Hebrew Bible, the texts we have read, and of Judaism stemming from that is that you don't Judaism does not require this. This, this is I think that's right. This is a bonus yeah. ask. Yeah. And all these laws that we have been looking at so far in the Hebrew Bible have been like, I think I've used the description of like the like bumpers that you put in the bowling alley to sort of, you know, like there's the ideal of this utopian world, but sort of an understanding that we're going to keep bending away from it. And so we have to have structures in place to reset things when we kind of inevitably mess them up. But 
the Torah never says nobody, I mean, maybe in some utopia, there would be an idea that no one really thought of themselves as owning anything. It's just, we are the stewards of these resources or something like that. But this is beyond that. This is yeah, sell everything. Yeah, so the, the text that we've read in the Hebrew scriptures the last couple of weeks, there's a sense of like, if you have accumulated extra beyond what yeah. is properly yours, then you need to give that yeah. back to the people to whom it rightfully belongs. But you're exactly right. Like that is not the same thing as sell everything you own and give the money to the poor. Like that is a whole other level. So why, why does Jesus ask for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll, we'll get to think about that some more as we go. But in, in my mind, there's a claim being made here about, I don't know, like Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, you cannot serve both God and money, which to me is one of the clearest places where this idea, like you try to, there's a way of trying to like hedge your bets, you know, like yes. doing the minimum that you've got to do in yes. the God thing while really keeping your stake in the empire thing or the earth yeah. thing or the human thing. And the question that the ruler asked is a little bit along those lines. Like, what is the checklist of things I need to do? Oh, I did I did all that. Right. It's fine. And so, I mean, Jesus has upped the ante here, I think in a, by way of saying, look, if you really want to participate in the world the way God desires it to be, then you you should be all in on relying on God's day-to-day providence. This this community of God will take care of you mm. and there will be enough. You don't need to rely on the things you've already accumulated. Does that make any sense or would you it do does. something different than no, that? No, 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 it does. And that last part is so helpful to me sort of in, in thinking about my the next question on my mind, which is, you know, when the, when the text says, um, where are the words exactly? When he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Yeah. I find that, I don't know, I find that very poignant. <laughs> yeah. But like, can we unpack it a little bit? Like why, it, 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 the way it reads is almost like because he's very rich, it's impossible. You know, it would be like, like, like Jesus had asked him to turn into a donkey. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't. Yeah. Like, why, why is it, why is it that the fact that he's rich seems to mean here, I don't know that he, that he can't, that he can't do it or that it's just inordinately hard to do it. Yeah, that's a really great question, Amy. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to this image of the camel trying to squeeze through the eye of the needle here in a minute. But you know, it's interesting if you read, we, we read this story also in Matthew's gospel and, and in Mark's gospel. We talked about Mark's version of this two years ago on the podcast. And in that text, the rich ruler actually leaves because he's so sad, because he's wealthy. Here, he's still sad, but he doesn't leave, which, which creates this interesting moment in this text. Like, we don't know what he's going to do. He's like, he's still there. He's still listening to Jesus as he mm-hmm. talks about this thing. And his decision is yet to be made, I think. One of the things about the sadness here is like, I, I mean, I think that it actually is the way it is. Like, 
I mean, when I think about giving up things, like I've worked hard in my life to build things and to keep my family, you know, fed and well-educated and safe and all of these things. And if you said you got to give all that away, which I mean, maybe is exactly what Jesus would say to me, it would make me really sad like that. And it's, I don't think it's that I'm somebody who is overly attached to my possessions, which is how this is sometimes is read. It's like, oh, well, this is really about people who love money more than they love other things. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that's me. Like, you could probably judge me if you wanted to, but um, I think it makes... like you, when you give up money, you're not just giving up like your island in the Caribbean, right? Yeah. You're giving up your safety and your yes. security and your confidence about the future. And there is a lot, a lot, a lot that has to be let go of. And it would make you sad. It does make you sad. Yeah. 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 I mean, it is asking both to give up, you know, comforts that he in particular maybe has tasted because he's rich. So that's just sort of sad in almost like a creaturely way. You can't have your porridge anymore, whatever it is. Yeah. I guess porridge isn't really a rich person food. Fancy porridge. Unless it's fancy porridge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't have your fancy porridge. <laughs> but yeah, also as you're saying, he if he's rich, we can assume that he's never really had to depend on God or on the community. Yeah. And so I imagine he doesn't trust that he can. Like maybe he doesn't even know that that's a, that that's yeah. a thing that could happen. Like the idea of giving yeah. up all your money would be like, now you're going to be desperate for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that's not what I don't think what Jesus is asking. It's just he doesn't – it's like he's asking him to do a trust fall, but you can't see if there's anyone down there to catch you, you know? Yeah. I, I love that image. And, you know, the question of, like, do you believe in God yeah. is oftentimes, at least in my experience, sort of framed as, like, do you cognitively mm-hmm. agree that there is a God out there someplace? Yeah. And what I think that question really means is, do you trust in God? Like, do you put your faith in God? It's exactly the trust fall. It's easy enough to say, yeah, I believe in God. But then if the question is, do you trust that God will take care of you or the community that belongs to God will take care of you even if you give up all the things by which you protect yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what faith in God means in this text. Yeah. And that's a whole different ballgame. Like that, you know, kind of, I mean, I don't know if I trust God that much. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So then it calls yeah. into question this whole thing about like maybe I've been keeping all these commandments since I was a kid, but like maybe I don't actually even trust God. And that would be really sad. It would be really like sad. even yeah. that's just a, you just took it to a whole other level. There is for for him to realize he thought he he was a person of faith, but now that you know push comes to shove, maybe he's not sure. Like maybe he has mm-hmm. been hedging, as 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 all of us are probably hedging. Yeah. Oh, I feel so bad. It is interesting that even as that is happening, Jesus, like even as Jesus is sort of taking away all this stuff with one Mm -hmm. hand, he's offering back with the other hand. Look, you're going to have treasure in heaven. Yes. And, you know, I don't quite know what that heaven means. I tend to want to read it the way you and I were talking about it earlier. Like there is a world, Jesus says, that is coming into being with, with and through Jesus, according to this gospel. 
And so I don't, I don't think this is just saying like, if you give it all away now in some deferred future, mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're going to be on walking on streets paved with gold. I think it's saying there is a kingdom that is coming into being right here and now. And you, if you can manage to let go of these things that you're holding on to, there's treasure there in this community. Yeah, you can be in it. That and that's, that's the you. real treasure. Yeah. And it could be here right now. You can join that today. But you can't have both. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, this only gets better. So should I continue or is there anything you want to add? Let's keep going. Okay. So I'm going to pick up in verse 24. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Then Peter said, look, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Mm -hmm. There at the end with that in this age and the age to come, you get that sort of the two time periods that Mm -hmm. we've been sort of wrestling with there is a kingdom of heaven now and there is one in the future yeah they are are, yes they're distinct but they are connected no that's very nice that's very nice okay so this starts really just continuing the conversation that that we were just having about what is it that makes it so hard in particular for someone who has wealth worldly wealth to enter the kingdom of god Is there more that you want to say, like now that this is unfolded a little bit more, we have the very famous line about the camel and the needle. I love that image of the camel and the needle. And, you know, people have tried to explain that in various ways that Mm -hmm. don't really hold any water. One that you hear sometimes is that there was a gate in Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle and that Mm -hmm. it was narrower gate than the other gates in Jerusalem. And so like a camel could get through it, but you had to take off the bags or whatever. You had to leave your stuff on the other side. That that interpretation arose in the Middle Ages, but I think by people who had the same trouble that we're having about like, what does this actually mean? Like Jesus is using an image here, I think literally of a full, a full grown camel trying to go through the literal eye of a literal needle and it cannot be done. Mm. And I think the extremes of this image is to say like, there are all kinds of ways in which we want to say like, no, it's actually like you can, it's, fi- it's fine to have stuff. Like you can, you can be kind of wealthy and still mm-hmm. be in this kingdom. And I think this image is trying to say, no, like wherever you think there's, wherever you're trying to draw your little hedge about this is a, this is enough. It's so impossible that the, you know, to get a camel through the eye of that needle, like mm-hmm. it's impossible. Like literally it is impossible. It cannot be done. And, you know, I think that prevents us from sort of saying, well, like, you know, I'm like, I'm middle class <laughs> or whatever. And so it's probably fine for like, this text doesn't apply to me. Like, I think yeah. that image is trying to not let us wiggle off the hook too easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had this, this thought while you were talking and maybe, maybe this is precisely what you meant, but I, I had always just thought of it as a metaphor that was like, yeah, it's impossible. That's impossible. And so this is impossible too. But thinking about you know, the way that people pack all their belongings onto a camel and like the camel becomes representative of, Mm -hmm. 
all of your worldly possessions and yeah. the eye of the needle becomes representative of like the very delicate and fine path that, you know, that that represents this this kingdom that God is inviting us into. And it just is almost like it's almost comical to think about this, like the fragility and care that one would need to to interact with the eye of a needle and then this big old camel loaded up with all the packs and everything yeah. like they're they're totally incompatible they're just yeah. totally incompatible they're not close yeah, that's right that's yeah i think that's exactly the right image I, I love that description of it and here it's the it's harder for a wealthy person so jesus is not saying it's impossible for a person to enter a kingdom it's impossible for a person with wealth and so this sort of giving away of what you own and entrusting yourself to the community then seems to become the way that it might be possible anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. That this that this kingdom of God is some kind of like life of complete interdependence and mutual responsibility here now yeah. on earth right now. And yeah. the more wealth you have, generally speaking, the less experience you have with or trust you have in those things. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me working in the context I do at Mercy Church that by and large, people who live on the street have a very high degree of trust in God. Yeah. And, and to a large degree, a trust in each other and a desire to help each other out. And so, you know, in my experience, oftentimes if you give something to somebody in the homeless community, the first thing they're going to do is split it up and give it to five yeah. other people who are all their friends on the street. Like they, they take care of each other. And, you know, like for me, coming from my background, I don't have that kind of trust in my fellow humans. Like I don't, you know, I, I don't trust enough to divide up the stuff I need for today. Tr- yeah. That when, when right. I need something tomorrow, they're going to divide it up, theirs up and give it back to me. And so there really is a, like there is an alienation. Like I don't, I don't want to like be weird and like, you know, um, valorize being poor or whatever the language mm-hmm. is I'm looking for there. But there is something about wealth that sort of alienates you from trusting your fellow human beings. Like that is true. Yeah. And this text is trying to get us to grapple with that for sure. Yeah. Their question is who then can, who can be saved? Which I think is the right question. Yeah. It sounds like not, nobody can make this thing work. You know, it's interesting. I, I pause on the answer to that question, what is impossible yeah. for mortals is possible for God. And I have a lot of questions about that, but I didn't really think about what is the answer to that question, then who can be saved? Yeah. Do you want to talk about that question, or should we talk about what's impossible for mortals is possible for God? I mean, I think the question there, who can be saved, I think the question there is then who can participate in this world that God has in mind? Yeah. This kingdom of heaven here here and now and in the future. It's interesting that they ask the question in the passive voice. Not like mm. then who can enter in, but who can be saved. And so there there's already this sort of inkling that people can't actually do this. Like s- somebody's got to make it work for them because we're all kind of stuck out here. And how are we going to how are we going to That's so interesting cuz now I'm looking back at the the first question that this man asked and it is it's still it's also kind of passive how do i inherit eternal life yeah 
You know, even though there is some, you know, yeah. some stuff that he's going to have to do, the way that the question is, is phrased is, how can this be given to me? Who can be saved? That's interesting. And that language of inheritance, which we didn't really talk about, but inheritance is something that sort of passes on from generation to generation or mm-hmm. is sort of co- a community um, property. And so one of the issues maybe here is that they're thinking about it in individual terms. What do I have to do? And really it's a communal thing. Mm. I don't that know if that goes no, that, no, but that that's, in, that's an interesting, interesting thing to think about. You know, one of the things that this is making me think about is we talk about from time to time that there's a, there is the way of life imagined in the biblical text, like the way that God desires for human beings to be. There is a way that the world works. Mm-hmm. And we, all of us, or almost all of us, I think all of us participate sort of oftentimes unthinkingly in the way that the world frames for us how we are to conduct ourselves and how, how we measure success and what we should do with our money. And that is such a powerful force. I mean, it's, it's the water we swim in, to use that metaphor, that, I mean, one of the things I think is happening here is to say, like, if you are a human, you have been brought up in this, in this way of thinking that you do need your money. You do need to be yeah. self-reliant. You do need to depend on the economics of the empire. And it's impossible to think outside of that box. You just can't do it, no matter who you are. So then when we get down here in verse 27 and Jesus says, what's impossible for humans is possible for God. Like the way that I read that is you yourself are incapable of thinking outside of this economic world that you have been given by the empire. And so if that's, if that's the best you can do, you're going to be trapped there. But God is offering you this other possibility. And in that world, that possible world that is coming into being, there's the only place that you can actually... Mm inhabit this other way of life so it's like humans can't conceive of it like i wondered if it was this is sort of a dark reading of it but if it was like yeah humans are not built to live in this economy that that god has in mind only god can do that but that doesn't Mm. seem like a very i i think i i think what you're saying is a is a more um generative version of that which is that humans can't imagine it like we can't design it we can't like construct it but if we can have enough faith enough like real trust we can just sort of lean into it and trust that it's it's there yeah already yeah i I, that's the way i tend to read it amy and i the first thing you were talking about is humans are not able to inhabit that kind of a world i what would be the point of that yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the way that I would frame that is the the power of sin is so strong in the world that our our way of thinking about what it means to be human is so messed up mm-hmm. that like we we really can't conceive of it. But it's not that we were designed so we couldn't conceive of it. Mm. It's that we have been so twisted by these systems that we live in that we can no longer think straight. And so God then is inviting us into this other way. But it's not saying that it's impossible for humans to do it. It's just... It's not saying it's impossible for humans. Is it saying it's impossible for humans to do it? Well, I mean, so I think that's a I think that is an open question mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, Jesus has just on the one hand said if you do this thing, then you can enter the kingdom of heaven, right? You can What did he say? Yeah. 
sell your stuff and you'll have treasure in heaven. So like he's just said, kind of said, you can do it. Yeah. And then he's turned around and said, it's not, it's actually, it's not possible. Only God can do it. And so some people will read that as, look, Jesus just kind of, that was like take backsies, <laughs> right? Yeah. So he just let us all off the hook because you can't do it anyway. And so why do you, why should you even try? Which I think is a really, really weak yeah, reading of this weak. passage. I mean, I see how people get yeah. there. The way I kind of see it is like, you couldn't do it if God were not there. Mm, mm-hmm. But God sort of shows you what is possible and invites you like to, to, to live in that world. I love that. And maybe empowers you in some ways, like surrounds you with community, gives you Torah. Yeah. Like God is sort of helping you along the way, but God's not going to do it for you. you I love that. He yeah, I love that. You, I love that. It's You can't do it without God. Right. Like you can't do it on your own, but it's also not God's going to do it for you. Yeah. That's exactly right. You can't do it without God. Yeah. I like that a lot. Because then the disciples are like, hey, but what about us? Like we did all this stuff. I and know. Jesus is like, yeah, man. Good job, guys. Yeah. See, you did what I said. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I have a question about the disciples and what they say. Yeah. Okay. It feels so different to me to ask someone to give up all their wealth versus leave your families, leave your children. Oh, yeah. Why don't you leave your children? That's a really different ask. Yeah. I mean, that's not really the ask here, but that's what they're saying that they've done. That's what they're proud of. Yeah. Well, no, it is. Well, whatever. Why are these those things put together here? Yeah, I mean, you sort of thought when Jesus said, give away everything you own, that like he, he had really upped the, the ante. And then now we get this other like, oh, yeah, not just what you own, but like all your relationships too. Yeah. Like it keeps getting harder and harder. I mean, this is how I make sense of that, which is the kingdom of heaven is, give, is giving you a choice. You now have an alternative way of life. And what this passage I think is saying is, you can't really live with one foot in one world and one foot in the other. Mm-hmm. You can't like conduct yourself according to the logic of the empire and also live in this kingdom of heaven that's coming into being. And so, you know, the, the way that I want to read it is if it were the case that your husband, wife, brother, sisters, parents, children were all in for this new way of life, they could come too. Mm-hmm. There, there's no great value mm-hmm. in sort of the splitting up of family. I see. But if they are stuck in the old yeah. way, yeah. then you got to let go of that if you want to be part of this new thing. I mean, it's still a hard teaching that I don't really love. Yeah. But I, that's kind of the way that it's not, the, it's not like, hey, yeah, family's terrible. Yeah. But if, you're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every but if your family can't see how to live in this new kingdom, then it's better for you to live in the kingdom without your family than to live in the empire with your family. Mm. And by the way, there's going to be new sisters and brothers for you to meet over here in this new, the new family of God that is forming. Yeah. 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 That at least makes, um, that makes sense to me. I was thinking too about the kind of, I mean, of course, you know, families do feel generally speaking, a kind of mutual dependence on each other. But what is being sought after here is like mutual dependence, but also sort of preferential protection. You know, like these, yeah. you know, like these are your people and it's a small circle and it's, it is good and right that you are mutually dependent and protect one another. But if you're trying to build this 
bigger community where everyone is doing their best to offer that for everyone, I can see how family units would be complicated to have Mm -hmm. in the midst of that. Certainly not impossible, but it would would change things. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you want to say on this section before we start moving towards a conclusion? I'm feeling kind of despondent. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because of the family thing? Yeah, because, you know. Because yeah. it's a camel. I'm holding up a mirror unto myself and trying to figure out, you know, what do you even what do you even say now? I know. You know, I just just right before we started recording this, I was leading a Torah study at my synagogue, and we just finished reading the book of Leviticus. And the group was not excited to read Leviticus. It's a pretty weird text. It's hard sometimes to find relevance in it. And there are a lot of really distressing things in there. So we were doing sort of a wrap-up of like what what were the really beautiful thing is the distressing thing is the questions that we still grapple with today, et cetera, et cetera. And someone said, someone said like, I still think this text is horrible and violent and judgmental and I hate it. And then someone else said, I think this text is a mirror. Mm. And it just was such an interesting conversation, the ways in Mm. which, you know, those things can, can both be true at different times or at the same time. And, and sometimes it is precisely the fact that they're a mirror that makes us hate it so much. <laughs> yeah. Because we can't just say it's, we can't say it doesn't apply anymore. I can't say I've mastered the camel dance through the needle. <laughs> yeah, this is, this text is asking a lot. Now, I think that image of the mirror is a really good one. And for me, these two texts together, Luke 4 and Luke 18, you know, we started out by saying if Jesus is saying that the kingdom he's coming to inaugurate is good news for the poor. Yeah. It is the year of the Lord's favor. It is the incoming, the inbreaking of the way the world the way God envisioned it. And that's good news for the poor. And holding out that sort of measuring stick of is the way that I'm living, is the way that I'm living the gospel, is what my church proclaims, is it good news for the poor or is it not? And then with this text to say, there's a real cost to being a follower of the way. You know, this text, the cost feels really, really high to me. Like, I have not achieved this in my life. I don't know that I can achieve this in my life. Like, I'm trying to, (laughs) me and my camel are trying to squeeze through that needle. And it's a little tight right there. I don't know. I don't know. But it is making me say, if my faith does not feel costly to me, that I'm probably not really doing it right. That the good news of the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven is not easily compatible with the ways of the empire and the, the economy that I thrive in. And so if I'm not feeling a tension between those two, then probably I have sort of a checklisty approach mm to what it means to be a person of faith rather than a whole life. Are you really living in a way that's good news to the poor? Mm-hmm. I will tell you when I founded Mercy Church a few years ago, it's, it's based on a model that I found in Atlanta. A guy in Atlanta named Chad Hyatt is the pastor. And he was like a pastor in a big Pentecostal church. Like he was headed to the, like he was going to be some, somebody important. And he decided one day that that's not what the gospel is calling him to. And so he quit his job. 
he started this church. He does it five days a week, six days a week, like his full-time job with no money. He just hangs out with homeless people and preaches the gospel. And like his spouse has a job that sort of pays their bills. Mm-hmm. And and when I started thinking about Mercy Church, I was like, that's really what it should look like. But I can't do that. <laughs> and so like I have kind of a, a, s- a smaller version of Mercy Church where I have a full-time job and we meet two days a week. And, you know, and I I struggle often actually with whether that is sort of a compromise, an overly compromised position. Like I couldn't do the thing I really felt I was called to do. So I sort of half-assed it. Or whether it's a way of saying, I am, I'm trying, like I'm yeah. doing the best I can do given what I've got and the responsibilities I have and the family that I care for. And so there has been a cost there for me. And I sort of think that maybe is the way the life of faith is in the end is you, you, you feel the tension between the what what the gospel is calling you to and what is you feel is actually possible. And maybe those never quite mm-hmm. resolve yeah. this side of the messianic age. But I think if you're not feeling the tension, that you need to find some ways of feeling the tension, r- recognizing that we're being called to something different than the world is simply handing to us. And that maybe living in the tension is, is what we can do and trusting that God's sorting that out in, in ways that are good for us and for the world is enough. As I, as I say that, I kind of think that's not exactly what this text is saying. Maybe it's like the opposite of what this text is saying, but it's kind of the way I can find to live with this text. Well, I mean, I think right that, now. I think that, I think you've raised up like exactly the question. Like, I think we can pull out what the text says and this text reads to me like it's pretty strident in yeah. what it is asking. And and so each person needs to figure out how they're going to live with that and how they're called to live with it. And it is, it, it is uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. But I think if you if we have in our minds a model of like all or nothing, you either sell all your possessions or don't even bother, that's probably not ultimately a good thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. there's a, I'm trying to remember who it was. There's a rabbi, maybe Soloveitchik, I'm not sure, who became more observant of mitzvot over the course of his life. And when, and, you know, it would be easy for people to pick on him and say like, he's doing these things, but he's not doing these things. And it's like hypocritical yeah. because you haven't done all that, you know, whatever. But he like maintained that you, it, you have to, you have to seriously walk the path and also let there be a path instead of just saying, like, I have to jump into everything. So when people would ask if he had taken on certain meets vote, he would say, not yet. Mm. Not yet. Mm-hmm. But hold out hope that, that that is the path that will unfold before you. Because I do think the kind of ask in this text is not, is not something that humans can just do. Yeah. And it, which is exactly what Jesus exactly says, what Jesus <laughs> right? Says. It, it's impossible for you, but it's possible for God. And and I, I think I love the way that you illustrate that and to say, you know, you, this is not about letting us off the hook. Like there are mitzvot yeah. that we need to do and, and also to be aware that we can't do them all at once. And so it, to, once we start thinking like, yeah, man, I'm doing this kingdom of God thing exactly right. Yeah. Then I think we're in trouble yeah. in a different kind of way. Then we need to check ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
so to say like I'm doing the best I can and I know it's not I know it's not an exactly the vision and God sort of filling in the gaps. Yeah. I think that's a good place to be. Mm. That's a good, good text and a tough one. I don't think I have ever, I've read this story a couple of times, but I've never thought about it in that way, sort of in, in connection to these, these um, economic justice texts that we have been reading. So I really, I really appreciate that particular. Yeah. That's one of the hopes for this series is that, by putting these texts together, kind of back to back to back, uh, we'll start to see some connections in them that we that you miss if you sort of treat them like where they occur yeah. narratively. I think it worked. It worked for me. Success. <laughs> well, good. I'm not the target audience, but it worked for me. <laughs> so next time we will pick up in a different gospel, Gospel of Matthew. We're reading chapter 6, verses 7 through 15 and verses 19 through 21. That first text is actually the Lord's Prayer, which I, you know, a lot of Christians say the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday, and I don't think we often think of it as an economic prayer. And hmm. so I'm very curious what we're going to see when we come back Me to it, too. given where we, where we are so far. Awesome. Well, I look forward to it. All right, Amy. Thanks for this conversation. I'll see you next time. All right. Take care. See you next time. Bye. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Laura Becker, Sean Avery, Jason Dillingham, and Alan Bancroft. Next week, we continue our special summer series with Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15, and verses 19 through 21. Until then, keep on digging.